Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We invite best-selling and award-winning authors to discuss their stories, their works, and whatever else that might bounce around a writer's mind or flow through their pen. And we bring them free to some of the more than 100 public libraries in the Twin Cities metro area. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. We don't judge slackers or fakers or hummus dip makers. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. This Club Book podcast features Amy Quanberry at Anoka County Library's Northtown branch in Blaine. Quanberry is a Vietnamese American author and poet. Her work has appeared in a wide range of literary publications, including The New Yorker and Plowshares. Berry has written three poetry collections to date, Asylum in 2001, Controvertibles in 2004, and Water Puppets in 2011. The last of these won the Donald Hall Poetry Prize from the Association of Writers and Writing Programs, and was a finalist for the 2012 Penn Open Book Prize. In her newest novel, She Weeps Each Time You're Born, Barry draws from history and her personal experiences with her native country to weave a chronicle of life in pre- and post-war Vietnam within the mystical and turbulent journey of the novel's protagonist, according to Booklist. Greetings. Thank you all for coming tonight. I think this is the first time I've been told that I'll be on iTunes. Like, oh, that's right. I wish I had the skills to actually know how to download a podcast on iTunes, but unfortunately, I don't. Um, thank you very much for the library for having me tonight. And again, like I said, thank you for coming. Um, as was mentioned in the introduction, I am also a poet. So I have this novel that I've published for the first time that just came out about three weeks ago. But primarily, I think of myself as a poet. So some of you might have come out tonight to just to see a fiction reading, but I'm going to slide some poetry uh, into tonight's event as well. So I'm actually going to begin by reading from, it just came out this past uh, January, my fourth poetry collection. And it's called Loose Strife. And basically, this poetry collection came about, I did a collaboration with a local artist in Madison, Wisconsin. Um, this is actually his work on the cover. And we had a gallery exhibition, and our exhibition was called Loose Strife, and we were thinking about what that meant. So many of you, particularly here in the Midwest, might be familiar with Loose Strife, the invasive species, the flower that comes in, takes over environments, um, kills off native species, et cetera, et cetera. But the word loose strife actually comes from the Greek, leukomake. And what it literally means is to loose battle, to loose chaos in the world. And so we were thinking about that. We were thinking about different kinds of violence. Um, oftentimes, we only think of violence as being physical violence. But it's the idea that violence can also be uh, environmental. It can be economic. It can be emotional, all those other kinds of things. So I'm going to read some poems from this tonight. The first poem I'm going to read is actually called Loose Strife. A lot of the poems in the collection have that title. 
And as you may remember, so this particular poem details uh, an event that happened, I think, maybe about 15 years ago, when the Taliban first came to power uh, in Afghanistan. And one of the first acts that the Taliban did when they came into power was they actually destroyed some ancient Buddhas along the Silk Road that had been there for more than 1,000 years. They saw these particular uh, religious statues as being idols, and again, they destroyed them. And in order to destroy these idols, it actually it took them a long time to do it. It wasn't just a simple act of taking a sledgehammer because these particular idols were huge. Um, and so this poem um, deals with that happening. Loose Strife. Say, when we woke those icy spring mornings, they were still there. The upper portion of their faces long ruined, but you could still see the meaning in their hands, palms once covered in gold. We knew better, better than to call them by their names, light that shines throughout the universe and his consort. But there were stories of travelers lost in the foothills of the Hindu Kush and a distant brilliance that led them home. The way a candle physically enters your body after it has been snuffed out. The pearly smoke suffused in the air. In one school, hundreds of miles away, all the girls my age were poisoned. And last week, outside the capital, a woman like my sister was shot dead in front of a crowd by two men who forced their bodies into her body and then judged her an infidel so they could kill her and be done with it. After the visitors were blasted, I had a dream. I saw a human man standing by a lake and no one was looking at him directly. His image on the surface of the water cleaner than anything in this world. In my dream, the man said, Thousands of lifetimes ago, when my body was cut into pieces by an evil king, I was not caught up in the idea of the self. Then, in my dream, someone picked up a rock and I woke up. It took almost a month, the great heads drilled with holes, then anti-aircraft tanks rolled in. Each hundred-foot niche, now empty, but each cavity left shaped like us, like a person. Before it happened, we talked about it. Grandfather said, don't they have a share in heaven? Second aunt said it was more realistic this way. God not in heaven, but in exile. So it's true that when you write a book called Loose Strife, a lot of the poems are happy poems like that. So um, I have to sort of forewarn you about that. This one actually isn't too unhappy, but as I mentioned, the violence, you know, it can be physical, it can be emotional, it can be economic. This particular poem um, is called Loose Strife, and the violence in it is more of an, uh, an environmental violence. So when I was a child, I grew up on the North Shore of Boston, but my family also had a house in New Hampshire. And in the early 80s, when I was a child, uh, there was a gypsy moth infestation. And the gypsy moths just came through New England and just devastated the trees. Um, and this particular poem um, just deals with what that looks like, or et cetera, et cetera. So. Loose strife. Nights in the loft, you could hear them eating. The sound as if someone were walking in snow. In the daytime, the music of their droppings like rain. They were all over the cottage, their buttery cocoons gumming up the shingles. Something wounded about it, the house as if covered with lymph. All summer, men walked around with jars of gasoline. My mother had her own system, a screwdriver and a can of thinner. As children, we would smash them open with rocks. Watch as the lime green guts went runny on the sidewalk, a liquid forest revealed. Dominion, each one haired like an eyebrow. 
In hindsight, their appetites were our appetites, their creed our creed. There is something miraculous about it, about transforming yourself into a beast of the air. Manifest destiny, justified and inevitable. By the end of July, the woods stripped as if December. True, nights it was easier to see the stars, to watch the satellites go sailing by, all of which someday will come tumbling back. You guys are a great audience, I can already tell this. I gave a reading in Boston last week and my family, my family has never seen me read before. And so, um, so I was in Cambridge reading and a lot of audiences, for people who haven't been to poetry readings, you know, like you'll read a poem and the people in the audience, like they don't know, like usually you, you don't clap in between poems. And my sister was like, I was like, no, no, no. And so she's she like, yeah, she was horrified. So um, as I mentioned, a lot of the poems in this book are not exactly happy poems, but this is probably the, the lightest poem in the book. And it's a poem called The Lord Be With You, But Not Also With You. So for those of you who, um, who have been to Catholic Mass recently, you may know that the liturgy has changed. So it used to be in the Catholic Mass that you would say, the Lord be with you, and people would say, and also with you. But a few years ago, I was, I was in Mass with my grandmother, and I discovered that it's now, the Lord be with you and with your spirit. And so the thought is, is that that particular translation is closer to the actual Latin. And so, but for me as a poet, I'm like, mm -mm. Um, it just doesn't have the resonance. The Lord be with you and with your spirit. I'm like, it just doesn't work, you know? So, um, so anyway, so that there, you'll hear that, and that's why this poem is called that. But I should tell you something else about this poem. This poem is called a guzzle. A guzzle, like this is the teacher in me, right? I'm looking around for a smart board, like guzzle. But yeah, there's okay, no, no dry, no dry erasers. Um, but a guzzle is a form that comes from the ancient Persian, and the way a guzzle works is that the entire poem is written in couplets. So it's written in two-line stanzas, and each stanza is end-stopped. So it means that each stanza is its own discrete thought. And so what happens in a guzzle is that you make huge leaps in logic. So one couplet might be about a dog, another couplet might be about the moon, another couplet might be about water. So again, you make these really large leaps in logic. And then the other thing that you need to know about the guzzle is that it uses a refrain. So what that means is that at the end of each couplet, you always have the same word at the very end of each couplet all the way through the poem. Um, and then what happens also in the guzzle, which makes it awesome, is at the very end of the couplet, at the very end, that there's, some kind, there's a reference to the poet. In some way, you make a reference to yourself in the poem. Um, sometimes people use their actual names. Sometimes, for example, my first name is really Amy. And so Amy means beloved in Latin. So maybe I would use the word beloved or what have you. But again, you make some kind of reference to yourself um, at the end of the poem. And so this is, a, if you saw this on the page, it, it doesn't look like a traditional guzzle because I kind of changed the form a little bit. And you'll also hear, as I had mentioned that again, that there's a refrain that happens each and every time. You'll hear in this poem that I've done something with that refrain. So, um, so again, it's just a little different. And basically, this poem came about because I thought I heard something once on the radio, and I realized it wasn't exactly what I thought I heard. So, the Lord be with you, but not also with you. The liturgy has changed, but paradise is still paradise, though Adam and Eve begged to differ on their way out of paradise. When he came to pick me up for our first date in his 1974 Dodge Dart, I knew it would never last hanging from the rearview mirror, a fuzzy pair of dice. In the comment section of Cooking Light, Illusion 9 says he can't find good bacon and liquid smoke won't do. 
Captain Cook suggests, substitute sun-dried portobellos, pared and diced. According to the TV news magazine that airs every third night, Teflon is the bird killer. Heat your pan above 400 degrees Fahrenheit, and in the next room, your parrot dies. The first time I saw her was in the tabloids at Circular Key, her perfect breasts sporting a black bar. Meet Johnny Depp's new lady love, Vanessa Paradis. When I got my Latin test back, the teacher had circled it in red. Impossible, she wrote. It made perfect sense to me. For six days of labor, God gave us the seventh, paradies. That first minute in the MRI, instant claustrophobia, heart clenched like a fist. Ladybug, I say to myself, remember the tunnels at Kuchi, the underground city in Derinkuyu, to paradise. So I'll read one more poem and then I'll read uh, from my novel. Um, so some of the first poems that I wrote when I was thinking, so again, I did this uh, collaboration with an artist, and so we were thinking about violence and all that kind of stuff, and I was actually traveling that summer in Cambodia, which is a country that obviously has had a long history, um, a long and violent history, um, and so this poem deals with an experience that I had in Cambodia. Loose Strife. Listen closely as I sing this. The man standing at the gate tottering on his remaining limb is a kind of metronome, his one leg planted firmly on the earth. Yes, I have made him beautiful because I aim to lay all my cards on the table. In the book review, the critic writes, Barry seeks not to, to judge, but to understand. Did she want us to let her be, or does she want to be there walking the grounds of the old prison on the hill of the poison tree, where comparatively, a paltry 20,000 died. In the first room with the blow up black and white of a human body gone abstract, someone has to turn and face the wall, not because of the human pain represented in the photo, but because of her calmness, the tranquility with which she tells us that her father and her sister and her brother were killed. In graduate school, a whole workshop devoted to an image of a woman with bleach thrown in the face, and the question of whether or not the author could write, the full moon sat in the window like a calcified eye, the woman's face aglow with a knowingness. I felt it come over me, and I couldn't stop. I tried to pull myself together, and I couldn't. They were children, an army of child soldiers. In the room papered with photos of the Khmer Rouge, picture after picture of teenagers, children whose parents were killed so that they could be left alone in the world to do the grisly work that precedes paradise. And the photos of the victims, the woman holding her newborn in her arms as her head is positioned in a vice. In this case, the vice an instrument, not of torture, but of documentation. The head held still as the camera captures the image the thing linking all their faces, the abject fear and total hopelessness as exists in only a handful of places in the history of the visible world. For $3 per person, she will guide you through what was Tulsleng Prison, Hill of the Strychnine Tree. Without any affectation, she will tell you the story of how her father and her sister and her brother went among the two million dead. There are 74 forms of poetry in this country and each one is still meant to be sung. 
So I'll read an excerpt uh, from my book, and then I will answer any questions that any of you have any questions, and then I'll finish off with one final poem. I have to admit that, um, again, I'm primarily a poet, and for me, reading poetry is easier and more fun, because like you read a poem, you tell a little story, you read a poem, you tell a little story, you know, you go back and forth. Reading fiction, I find, is actually more difficult because you have to sustain something. And then the other thing that makes fiction difficult is that oftentimes the things that you want to read are much longer and take a long time, so you actually have to compress them down and edit them. And so you hope that even though you've edited it down so that it's shorter, it still makes sense for your reader. Um, so again, like I said, I always find reading fiction like more of a challenge. So having said that, what I'm going to read is actually an excerpt, obviously, from my novel. And it's, uh, I chose to, I, you know, decided to read this because it's self-contained. It has a beginning, it has a middle, it has an end. But it's true that we're, the, in this particular section, this is actually a secondary character who we spend very little time with in the novel. Like, this is kind of his big moment. Um, but we really don't spend that much time with him, so he's not the main character. He's not, again, someone, like I said, that we spend a lot of time with. His name is An. And basically, he was a soldier for the Vietnamese for the South, and he worked with the Americans. And what we'll hear is the story of what happens to him um, after the Americans have left and after the North Vietnamese have come down and the country is being reunited. This is what happened to soldiers, to many soldiers, again, in the days, weeks, months, years after reunification of the country. So he's just so, in the last, so the, where I'm starting is the country, again, the North has just come down. And so a lot of people in the South are thinking, like, what's going to happen? Is there, is there going to be a bloodbath? Like, what's going to happen to us? And what happens is that the soldiers are told to report to an army base, and their individual uh, cases will be evaluated as to what should happen to them. He arrived an hour before the main gate opened. There were others already waiting. On base, the lines were endless. He was surprised so many had shown up. There was a feeling of optimism in the air. Ten days and they could be done with it, the last half century. They could finally be a country of brothers. Maybe he had been wrong to oppose the North. Inside, he moved from line to line as he was moved up the chain. Each time the official on the other side of the table asked him in a friendly manner if he wanted to be a good citizen. More than you know, he said. An could feel the officers trying not to stare at his mismatched eyes. Toward late afternoon, an official passed him a legal pad. Not unkindly, he was told to write out what he'd done during the war, where he'd served, what he'd been in charge of. The more detailed, the better, the official said. Dates, names, places, strategies employed. When his turn came, he was led into an empty room. He was told to sit down and wait. The guard took the legal pad with his, hand, with his account handwritten over seven pages. The only names he listed were names everyone knew, generals and such. The official who entered the room was middle-aged. Comrade Doe was clean-shaven, his cheeks sunken like most of the northerners. An noticed he had cuffed his left sleeve higher than the right, presumably to show off his new wristwatch. The northern soldiers were buying everything in sight, watches and refrigerators and TVs and radios, motorbikes, even cars things they had never been allowed to own in the North. Secretly, some of them felt betrayed. All these years, decades really, they'd been told that in the South, only the top echelons of the corporate capitalist swine owned such items, and now to come all the way down here only to discover that even middle-class families had gas stoves. Comrade Doe smiled. Overhead, the light began to flicker. You want to be a good citizen, don't you, he asked. Of course. An said it before the comrade had even finished the question. 
With his left hand, Comrade Doe slid the yellow legal pad with An's account on it across the table. The watch flashed on his wrist. An realized the man was left-handed and that he didn't know that one wears a watch on the opposite wrist. The new government wanted names. It wanted secrets. It wanted even the littlest things, like who took out the trash and on which day of the week. An knew he could never tell them enough. There was nothing else to do. He threw himself on the shoals, said he'd worked with the Americans, that he had little involvement with the Vietnamese. Comrade Doe licked the face of his watch a few times and began shining it with his elbow. The Americans left in 72, he said. What did you do after that? Something about the way the comrade licked the watch, the slowness of his movements, like a cat licking its paws after a kill. An sat back in his chair. He realized everything about his case had already been decided. He didn't say another word. It was out of his hands, a river sweeping him onward toward, toward whatever it would bear him. After three nights crammed in a holding cell, he was taken by truck five hours into the highlands. Back in the day, the holding cell had been used to keep drunk American soldiers under lock and key until they sobered up. For three nights, it housed more than 30 men. Each hour, they rotated positions. Three men at a time were allowed to lie down. The rest of them stayed standing, the air by the wall like being smothered alive. At the front of the cell, the ventilation was the freshest, though it meant you were mashed up against the iron bars. Men stepped away from the rungs with marks running the length of their faces. Those first days, there was a Buddhist monk in the cell. His orange robe shone like a sunbeam, head smooth as a globe. Somehow, he spent three days kneeling. Even when the monk's eyes were open, An could tell he wasn't there, all earthly attachments severed. He never saw the monk take any of the paltry food and water they were handed once a day in two wooden bowls for the entire cell. The monk simply knelt by the plastic bucket they relieved themselves in, the bucket with a hairline crack spidering down the side of it, which someone had tried to stop up with gum, urine and waste slowly leaking from the crack, the monk's robes soiling in the seepage time dripping on into more time. The monk didn't blink when men squatted to defecate right by his head. At mealtime on the third day, the guard read a list of names. On and 10 others were called. They were told to prepare their things and leave without eating. None of them had anything to prepare. All their things had been confiscated the first day they came on base. By the time they got to the trucks, there were other prisoners already waiting inside, along with two guards with old guns. When the prisoners got off the trucks, there was nothing but jungle in every direction. They had to hike several hours. Sometimes it seemed like the guards didn't know where they were going. Under the canopy, the heat felt like a blast furnace, even in the shade of the broad serrated leaves. The first few men through the path were quickly adorned with leeches on their necks, one of them as big and as dark as a plum. After a few hours, they were told to stop. There were 80 men standing in the jungle. All around them stood a ring of men with guns, some of the guards just boys, their uniforms too big or obviously borrowed. The prisoners were told their job was to clear the land, harvest the trees, build their own shelters, grow their own food, find any mines that might still be present, prove their loyalty, redeem themselves, regain their citizenship, keep an eye out for those among them unable to be rehabilitated, realize the error of their ways. 
The very first structures they were forced to build were a series of small boxes barely big enough for a man to stand up in. The first man put in the box was a former student leader named Nam. But I protested against the war, Nam said over and over as they dragged him in one morning. Don't listen to him, the guard said. He is a traitor who has been to the great enemy. I have been to the United States, Nam conceded, but to lecture against the war. He said he'd been flown to America by anti-war organizations to speak with students in a place called Berkeley, another called Madison. The guards got his arms in and closed the door. A piece of wood shot through a bolt in the front to keep it closed. All morning in the hot sun, they could hear Nam's cries, at first like a small child, then like a wounded animal, and then nothing. The guards made a show of taking him out that night when the others came back from clearing the jungle. When they opened the door, he fell on his face, his body shaking, mouth white with foam. Two men were ordered to carry him over to the spot where they all slept out in the open. By morning, he was dead. In less than a week, they'd built two barracks. The floors were dirt, and they were told not to hew any windows into the walls. The hardest part was cutting down the trees miles away in the jungle and dragging the logs to camp. They didn't understand why they had to use trees from so far away, but they didn't question it. During the day, there were various teams of 20. Building was the best assignment. After a few weeks, an architect arrived in one of the trucks, but the guards didn't care. Nobody is better than anyone else, they said. One of the supply sheds collapsed during a thunderstorm. For a while, two of the barracks looked rickety until the men shorted up at the urgings of a newly arrived engineer. Even when someone needed medical attention, the guards didn't turn to the numerous doctors in camp, three of them surgeons trained in France. When a man accidentally had two of his fingers cut off with an axe, he died within the week from a combination of infection and blood loss. For the first month, on worked logging. It became dangerous when one of the groups discovered that the river was the only chance they had to even possibly make their quotas. It took six men to carry a log the half mile to the river. Then they would throw it in and tie it up. When they had six logs in place, they would let them go. Each man was tied to one, logs round as 50-gallon drums, the inner wood pale as sand. It was each man's job to guide his log the two miles downriver, making sure it didn't get snagged. It was dangerous because you could get caught up in someone else's rope. There were also places where the trail they'd hacked became treacherous, the jungle growing so fast they had to constantly cut it, or one day there might be a vine or a root that wasn't there the day before. Sometimes if a log got swept away in a current, you could be pulled into the river before you had a chance to cut yourself free. When it happened, you were dragged who knows where, maybe all the way out to sea, your body washing up on shore a thousand miles away. The worst part was the place they had chosen to pull the logs back up on land. It was the closest spot to camp, but the waters were strong. Every week, someone got pulled in along the route, his body battered among the logs. Depending on where you got pulled in, you might survive with several broken ribs, though more likely your throat would be crushed. After three months, the camp began to look like a camp. There were 10 barracks, each housing 50 to 100 men. There were houses for the guards, a proper kitchen, a small medical clinic that was used sporadically, mostly when a government official was coming to visit or when a place was needed to store someone until he died. There were two other buildings which they used for interrogations. 
Each time you were interrogated, you were handed a yellow legal pad and told to write out your confession. The men who couldn't write were told to draw. If they couldn't draw, then someone was assigned to write it down for them as they spoke. They all began to look forward to the interrogations. Written confessions could stretch 20, 30 pages, a good three hours, an uninterrupted period of time when you weren't working in the jungle. They would work from sunup to sundown. At the end of the day, the men out in the farthest quadrant felling the trees had to stumble home in the dark. Then, each night after their dinner of fish and rice, after their dinner of rice and fish sauce, the red sand and the rice slowly grinding their teeth down, they would attend a meeting. Often the meetings were self-directed. Each group had a leader, someone the guards randomly assigned. The team leader's job was to keep count of the tools, make sure each axe made it back into the shed. Mornings he double counted, confirming that everyone was in line by six. Nights the group leader kept them on topic. What were your errors, brother? In the future, what will you do right? For the most part, they would sit around a small fire and try not to fall asleep. The mode was confessional, the favored form, the self-critique. You had to talk about your daily performance, your work in the jungle, the reasons why capitalism would fail, the shadows that lingered on the surface of your heart. Often, someone was assigned to give the daily reading. A citizen recognizes that a society is only as good as its citizens. A son must love his country first, his father, and then his mother. The dysentery, the malaria, the fevers that would never break, the lack of protein, the sun, the rain, the expected and the unexpected, the monotony, the lack of privacy, the self-critiques, the constant acting, pretending you were ashamed of yourself when you weren't. Time passed, men died, somehow on held on. He wasn't the strongest or the bravest or the most resolved. When someone told him a year had passed, even he didn't know how he'd done it. The first time he got put in the box, it was a mistake. Even the guards knew he wasn't the one who had killed the hen out of spite. The eggs were strictly reserved for the camp chief. Comrade knew was a slight man with a lisp and no mercy. There was talk he had spent the war in China keeping the supplies flowing. When the hen was found with its neck snapped, lying at the foot of New's house, even the guards shuddered. Among the prisoners, there was already a rumor circulating that one of the guards had done it because he was tired of watching New eat eggs every morning while the guards had none. They were trying to get someone to confess. The door to one of the punishment boxes was gaping open. Barrack by barrack, the prisoners were lined up. The guilty one was told to step forward or there would be repercussions for all. The last time they had been threatened with group punishment, they had been denied water for two days. Four of the older men had died out in the jungle. They were already late to head out. It meant none of them would make their quotas. Maybe they wouldn't get anything to eat. An looked at Mr. Liu standing to his left. Liu was in his 60s. He had once been a professor of law at Saigon University. He had helped negotiate the Paris Peace Accords. An wasn't really thinking when he stepped out of line. He walked up to the front of the box. Behind him, hundreds of men were holding their breath. Up close, it wasn't even as deep as his arm, the thing in upright coffin. He closed his eyes and stepped inside. The guards stood staring at one another. We'll shut it, someone said. The door creaked shut behind him, hinges groaning as if with pain. He could hear the sound of the bolt being rammed home. Inside, there wasn't even room to turn around or raise his arms.
Later, he tried to tell the others it hadn't necessarily been unpleasant. That when the discomfort came, you had to settle into it. You had to make peace with the ants crawling up your leg, the smell of urine and feces as if you were steaming in them because essentially you were. The sweat trickling into your eyes and the sting that became a blurring. He tried to remember the orange orange robed monk from those first days in the holding cell. The monk whole worlds away, his robe caked with shit. He began to see colors. He could hear the sound of the sea. Each time his blood coursed through his body, he felt the tiny kick as his heart whooshed it through. There wasn't even space to fall down. Before he blacked out, he knew if he came out of the box alive, he would make it through absolutely everything. It was out of his hands. The world would decide if he should live or die. He was starting to merge into an even greater darkness, heart shuddering like a drum, somewhere the ocean swelling like a graveyard. He knew somewhere, someone was crying for him. And with that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our Club Book audience for questions and comments for Amy Quanberry and her work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night inquires about the amount of research that went into Quanberry's latest novel, She Weeps Each Time You're Born, and how that fits into her writing process. Yeah, I'm not a big researcher. Um, Research and I are not very good friends in many ways. But for that one section of the book, it's true, I did do a lot of research for that particular book. So even to back up just a little bit, I had uh, originally like 10 years ago, I've always known that I wanted to write a novel about Vietnam. And I had actually decided that I was going to write a, a novel about an American nurse in Vietnam during the American war there. And I did a ton of research about doctors and nurses in Vietnam. And you know, I read all kinds of books and watched all kinds of documentaries. And I did all this stuff. And I actually wrote 100, 200 pages of this novel, and I realized that it was not good and it was not going anywhere. And I realized that because with the research, it made me feel, a, I felt a lot of responsibility to get their stories right. Um, and I basically realized that my novel should really just be a memoir. And the truth is that there's a lot of people, doctors and nurses, who have written memoirs about serving in Vietnam during the war. So sometimes for me, research, like I said, it can be a burden because you feel like you have this tremendous duty to get certain people's stories right. And that's why, by and large, if I don't have to do research, I don't. Um, And so anyway, so I knew I wanted to write that particular story. And so I thought I did. And I went back to Vietnam, um, Detroit, because I knew that novel wasn't going very well. And I was like, well, I'll go back and maybe something will happen. And when I went back to Vietnam, I had this experience with my guides, um, who I've traveled with before. And you travel on using motorcycles, and you drive from place to place. And basically, you know, with them, it's, it's ex- it, it sounds weird, but it's an exhausting way to travel because with them, like you go 50 feet, then they want to show you something. Then you get off the motorcycle and go, you look. You go another 50 feet, there's something else. You get, you get off the boat, like the bike like 200 times a day. You know, you're like, Ugh. And so they wanted to show me this, this particular memorial that we passed. And um, I was like, another memorial. Like, I'm so tired of going to memorials. There's so many of them. But they're like, no, this is different. It'll be great. So we went to this memorial. And next to it, there was actually a house where the caretaker lived. We knocked on the door, and we talked to the caretaker. And the caretaker told us that this woman, Fanti Bit Hang, was going to be coming to the memorial 
to visit it, and he was really excited about this. And I said, you know, who is Fanti Bit Hang? And it turns out I, I discovered that she is the official psychic of Vietnam. She basically was bitten by a rabid dog when she was a child, and when she came out of her coma, she can hear the voices of the dead. And the government actually uses her to find the remains of soldiers and other prominent people. Um, and so when I heard that story, I'm like, ah, my novel's not about an American nurse, it's about this. And so it's not exactly about her, so I didn't do any research into her in particular, but I took that idea um, and, and ended up writing a book about it. So the truth of the matter is when it comes to research, like I said, there are a couple of things that are researched in the book. That particular section is one thing that was super heavily researched. There's also a section um, in the book where we learn about um, the French rubber mine, I'm sorry, the French rubber plantations um, that were in Vietnam from the early 1900s through uh, when France left. And so I, I researched that a lot, like what happened on these rubber plantations and things like that. So those are aspects of the book that I researched. But most of it for me um, is just sort of made up. And that for me is a writer, it's easier for me to make. Some writers really like doing research and it gives them a lot of you know, material to work with. I'm the opposite, I like to do as little research as possible and then it allows me to make up other kinds of things. Um, so yes, that was a long answer to your question. But so research, like I said, research and I are not on great terms. But um, I think you know in this book you, you didn't hear it in that particular section. But there's a lot of magical realism in the book. There's a lot of like things that happen that obviously can't happen in real life, and um, those kinds of things that allow me again to make stuff up. And so like I said, I feel like that's something that I'm really super comfortable doing. So I'm like the, I don't know if there's a word for like the opposite of research, but if there were one, that would be that would be me. Another audience member mentions that after the war, she worked alongside numerous Vietnamese refugees and heard many of their stories. She explains that Quanberry's reading really resonated with her. You know, one of the things that I, in thinking about that, that I wanted to do in writing this book is that so often, and I've talked about this in interviews, so often when Americans think about Vietnam, you know, we only think about the Vietnam War. We don't think about like what happened afterwards to people who were left behind. You know, we don't think about the whole history of Vietnam, going back to again the French, the, you know, the Cambodians, and thinking about Vietnam's relationship with the Chinese. Again, we only see it through the lens of just, you know, our involvement there. But again, there's so many other stories. And so when I was researching this, I wanted to bring those other stories out. And so for example, I learned uh, I was in Cambodia in 2001, and I had a guide in Cambodia, and you know, we went around. And at the end of my time there, I discovered that he was actually Vietnamese, and that he had actually left Vietnam, I can't say exactly when, but he had ended up in a refugee camp, because there are all these camps all over Asia, and he was there for 20 years in a refugee camp trying to come to the United States. I mean, I had never heard that people after the, the war got put in these camps and were there for decades. And so what ended up happening with him was that he couldn't be repatriated in Vietnam, and so when they closed the refugee camps, they sent him to Cambodia. But again, as an American, I didn't, I didn't know any of that. So it's true that what I was trying to do in this book is to bring out those stories, again, like I said, because all we know is just, oh, Vietnam, quagmire, you know. Our next question is what it is like for Amy Quanberry to go from writing poetry to writing novels. People ask me that, so the difference between poetry and, and, and prose. You know, and it's, I don't think I'm the first one to use this analogy. People talk about the idea of, um, you know, the difference between poetry and prose is like the difference between being a sprinter and being a marathon runner. You know, you're both athletes, um, but again, obviously, running short distance is different from being, you know, a marathoner in many ways. The thing that I like about poetry, it's, I, I, I like to use the analogy of like the 100 yard dash. I guess now it's the 100 meter dash, right? So the 100 meter dash versus running a marathon, in the sense that like 
anybody theoretically can run the 100 meter dash. And I think that's kind of true about anybody can write a poem, which is sort of the beauty of a poem. Like, you know, kids write poems. You know, like we go out to the schools and we do things. So that's kind of the beauty of the poem is that anybody can do it. It's true, though, that when it comes to running a marathon, you know, not necessarily anybody I mean, it takes a lot of training to run a marathon. And, and it just takes a little bit more discipline, obviously, to write. A no not that anybody can't write a novel, but like I said, it takes more discipline to do it. Um, the way in which, so for me, again, it's about discipline. Ed, which I'm not necessarily, I, that, I think there is a reason why I'm primarily a poet, because my discipline's like, you know, to write a novel, like, you really do have to sit down, like, hours a day, you know, which is not my style. There's, there's a saying that poets, you know, that fiction writers, you know, write eight hours a day, and that poets think 23 hours a day, and then sit down for a half hour, you know what I mean? So it's like, that tended to be more me, like, I'm more of a half hour kind of writer. Um, so like I said, it takes more discipline. And then the other way in which I can definitely see that my poetry informs my fiction, people often think that, you know, because it's true that the language in my, in my novel is kind of poetic, you know, it's fairly lyrical in certain kinds of ways, but I don't think that that's actually the influence of my poetry. I think that actually the way in which my novel is more poetic or shows that I'm a poet is this thing that maybe you can hear when I read the poems. Um, Poetry is a, you know, it's a compressed art form, and so it relies on the reader to unpack it. It relies on the reader, because it's short, that you have to do the work to infer larger sorts of things. And so oftentimes I think of it in terms of stretching. With a poem, you know, I'll write this much, but I need the reader then to stretch and to fill in the rest of the meaning, and that's kind of what happens with poetry. Oftentimes with fiction, with narrative, with movies, with TV, what happens is that you're given most of it, and then as a viewer, you're just kind of here. Like, you don't have to do that much stretching to fill in the meaning. And so one of the things in this particular book, you know, I had somebody tell me, it was more of a comment than a question, um, at a reading, and he meant it as a compliment, although it could have come out sounding really bad, but he was like, you know, in this book, he's like, you really don't think about the reader at all. Because um, it's true, it's a book in which, it, you know, not in the part that I read, but it's kind of, I don't want to say it's difficult, it's not like James Joyce, but it definitely needs you as the reader to do certain kinds of work to put certain things together, you know what I mean? And so to me, that's more of the, that's me as the poet, like asking you as the reader then to make this stretch. Um, so yeah. As far as other differences, again, between, you know, working in poetry and working in fiction, one of the things is when I write poems, I can see the whole poem, I, I know what it's doing, I can conceive of its beginning or its middle or its end, that I can f keep it all in my brain at one time. When it comes to writing a novel, I really needed help to see, you know, that's where my editor or other readers come in, because, you know, you're working on a 300-page manuscript, and you just can't keep it all in your brain at one time. Like, you don't know what you're doing in different sections, and so it's helpful to have other readers look at it and to be able to tell you, oh, this is what's happening here, this is what's happening here. Whereas in a poem, I don't need that, because it's small. But again, I needed other eyes, because again, the novel is just that much longer, so. Our last question of the night is about how much material Quanberry is pulling from her personal life when writing either poetry or prose, and what her creative process looks like. So, you know, it's funny because again with the novel, I'm finding that people really want to see me somewhere in the novel, um, and I'm not. You know, I, I was born in Vietnam, um, but I left when I was a child, but you know, interviews I've done, people are always, they just assume that you know, because I was born there, that that really means, and that's, and it's, you know, I've been very fortunate that I've traveled a lot in Asia. I've been to a lot of places in Asia. The book that I'm working on now is about Mongolia. So it's true that it, it happens to be about Vietnam, and I happen to be born there, but there really isn't any larger resonances. It's just that I stumbled on a great story in Vietnam. So it doesn't, you know, so me in there, it's not really true at all. Although there is a character named Amy Kwan, but that's another story. But, 
So when it comes to the fiction, it's true. The fiction really, I'm not in there at all. When it comes to the poetry, I remember a lot. Um, and I'm not, you know, a lot of poets are very write a lot about their lives. I don't write a, about my life, but I definitely write about things that I'm thinking about. So it's not it's not autobiographical as far as like I did this or I did that. Again, it's just things that um, that I'm thinking about. Hmm. Yeah. So um, obviously, in one of the poems that I read, um, you know, I. It's about an experience that I had in Cambodia, but even then, I, even though I'm kind of in the poem, I don't really think of it as being a poem about me. Um, again, it's more about an experience that somebody has, and it just happens that, that I'm the one who had that experience. So, I mean, that's a good question. I, I really have to think about it a lot harder. I definitely kind of also pride myself on my poetry not being about me. Like, I, I'd like to think of myself as being I read a lot of poetry, and a lot of poems to me really are about the poet in ways that I don't find particularly interesting. And so, you know, they talk about this idea of poetry of witness. Poetry of witness is poets who write about things that happen in the world. They write about, you know, um, historical happenings. They write about, you know, uh, suffering of others. I do tend to think of my of the work that I do as being along, being more in that kind of vein. And, and you, I think you'd also asked about like the idea of origin and how it starts. I think. When I was younger and I would write poems, they did oftentimes begin with an image. I would see something and I would just want to figure it out. And I would want to figure out why it was resonating with me. So for example, I remember once on campus walking home and I saw, and I still haven't used this in a poem yet, but I saw, it was really beautiful. There was a chair and somebody had put it in a tree. And so there's this chair and this tree. And I just remember looking at that and being like, huh. And so eventually when I write about it, um, I'm just going to want to figure out, like, why did that resonate with me? Like, what is it about that image? Like, why has it stuck with me? Um, and that oftentimes that's where my poems come from, is I'll see something or I'll hear a story. Oftentimes it's from NPR. And I'll just try to figure out, like, why, what is it, why am I drawn to that? Um, so that's, so it's not, sometimes it's, it's an image that I, I'll see. Sometimes it's a story. Sometimes it's a fact that I'll find out. But like I said, it's always about me trying to figure out, like, what is it, where does the power of whatever this thing is, where does that come from? Um, I will read one more poem. Uh, yes, one more poem. And uh, so again, thank you all very much for coming. And it's funny because this poem has kind of, today I was like, oh, it was on the front page. It was the newspaper that I got at the hotel was uh, USA Today. So I saw this on the cover of USA Today. As I mentioned, so Loose Strife, it's about the idea of violence and violence in various, you know, again, economic, emotional, uh, physical, all that kind of fun stuff. So this poem has more to do, again, with the idea of emotional sort of violence. And I wrote the poem first, and then after this thing happened, I began to think of this poem. I think of this poem now as my Paula Broadwell poem. So for those of you who remember, again, Paula Broadwell was the mistress of General Petraeus. And he was in the news today because he just cut, I guess, a plea deal. And so again, if you remember what happened with her is that basically she was the mistress of General Petraeus. And the way it all came out was because basically she lost her mind. And she sent like 17,000 emails in a month to a woman who she thought was her rival. Um, and basically nobody ever would have known, but it came out that she had sent like 17,000 emails in a month to like one person. And I was just thinking about that, again, that idea of how emotions like that can get the better of us. And, and can do various things to us. Um, and so again, this poem is called Loose Strife. Loose Strife. I will not say its name, the way it ruined me. The body halved, a kind of mitosis. Suddenly, everything on the cellular level as if sentient. The potatoes growing eyes in the dark under the sink. The way Lysimachus, for whom the invasive is named, walked and walked through the terrible burning. 
the emotion openly disfiguring his face, the way a lover will sometimes turn directly toward the beloved in that other language, the thing shuddering under the skin until it floats up into the light with all the colors of ephemera and bursts. There was a maze. There was a photograph of the night sky taken over several hours, the stars like scratches on a record. As far as I know, there is no unified theory as to why it exists, except the theory of the animal, the theory of glands and secretions. It comes when it comes, and if fortunate, it comes without end. The lesser vertebrates rub themselves in its musk, coat themselves in its glory. It ruined me, and I let it, hands held above my head as if under arrest. Thank you. Well, that's it from our Northtown Library event with Amy Kwanberry in Anoka County. Catch our next Club Book event with Nadia Hashimi at 7 p.m. Wednesday, March 11th at the Highland Park Community Center in St. Paul. Hashimi is the author of The Pearl That Broke Its Shell, a powerful novel that follows two Afghan women, one in the present and the other in the recent past, living as Bacha Posh, young women disguised as young men a true Afghan practice. Meet Nadia Hashimi, get your questions answered and books signed. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle at clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to those who make Clubbook possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, Around Town Agency, the St. Paul Hotel, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Clubbook. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.